Um, and so when the global financial crisis finally reached Kenya, um, donors were pulling their funding. And so we started to think of a solution um, for people that wouldn't be reliant on handouts or aid, but would rather create employment. Um, and a common statistic is that women tend to reinvest over 90% of their earnings back into their families and communities. And so we knew that we wanted to employ women. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today we have with us Kate Holby, co-founder of Agility, giving 100% of the profits to create opportunities for women and children. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Vidya. When was Agility founded? Yeah, so Agility was started almost 10 years ago, um, back in 2009. And how old were you then? So I was 19 years old when we started Ajiri T, and my sister, Sarah, who's also the co-founder, um, was 21 years old um, at the time and living in Kenya. So it's rather early for you to be thinking of starting a company, let alone just starting a company, starting a company so far away from home in Africa. What prompted you and Sarah to start Ajiri T? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, probably uh, starting a company like this when we are younger had certain advantages, right? So you want the ideal company, right? You want a company that reflects your idealism and optimism with the world at the time. Um, but we started a Jiri T really in reaction to events happening around us. So in 2009, um, as we remember, was the height of the global financial crisis. Right. And my sister, Sarah, at the time was volunteering for an NGO in Kenya that was handing out food and drugs to people with HIV and AIDS. Um, and so when the global financial crisis finally reached Kenya, um, donors were pulling their funding. And so we started to think of a solution um, for people that wouldn't be reliant on handouts or aid, but would rather create employment. Um, and a common statistic is that women tend to reinvest over 90% of their earnings back into their families and communities. And so we knew that we wanted to employ women. And so really a Jiri T company does three things. We create sustainable employment for women in rural Kenya. Um, we source award-winning tea from small-scale farms in the same region of Western Kenya. And then we sell that tea here in the States um, and in Australia. And then we send 100% of our profits back to Kenya to pay school fees for orphans. So we are a for-profit company. So we're structured similarly to Newman's own company in that we're for-profit, but we donate 100% of our profits to our connected 501c3 Ajiri Foundation. Let's give the listeners a little bit visual of Kenya. Where exactly is Kenya located in Africa? Yeah, so Kenya is in East Africa. Um, and the area that we are working in is Western Kenya. So as if you're going out to Lake Victoria, past the Maasai Mara, um, we're working in an area called Kisi. So it's lush, rolling hills, um, beautiful 
beautiful rolling hills. Everything grows um, in Kisi. It rains every day. It's really just a beautiful part of Kenya. Um, And it also happens to be an area of Kenya with the largest HIV and AIDS rates in the country because it is such a a major trucking route. And so that has left, um, of course, many orphans in the wake. And so, you know, part of what we do at AGRIT is we also try and provide education for orphans to fill that need. To talk about the tea, um, what are the different kinds of teas which are grown in Kisi? Yeah, so the the tea that grows in Kisi, and I can give you kind of a bit of a background of tea in Kenya because I find it quite interesting, is that tea was introduced by the British via India um, at the turn of the century. And so tea is actually one of Kenya's largest exports. Um, And Kenya is one of the largest producers of black tea in the world. Wow, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, and that black tea usually doesn't come to the States. It usually goes to the Middle East um, where they like a stronger black tea, right? You know, both the U.S. haven't really developed a palate for quite strong black teas. You know, we're real coffee drinkers here. Um, But uh, Kenyans themselves also drink drink tea every day um, with milk and sugar, and they drink a black tea. Um, And so the tea that we are buying is black tea. It's, you know, black tea and green tea come from the same plant. It's all how it's processed. Farmers in Kenya, we're sourcing it from a cooperative of 20,000 small-scale farmers who own, on average, a quarter acre to two acres of land. And so farmers are all hand-picking each two leaves in a bud. And this is kind of, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of work. And it's all grown organically, though we are not certified organic. That is a quite expensive certification to certify 20,000 small-scale farms. Um, The tea, there are no natural pests to tea in Kenya. So our tea is all grown organically. And, you know, you can have a really strong mission. uh, And our mission, as you know, is to create employment for women and to send orphans to school. But you also have to have a high quality product to back up your mission. And we've been really lucky, or we haven't been lucky. In fact, it takes a lot of hard work in that our black tea has won the best black tea three years in a row at the World Tea Expo. So we have a very high quality product to back up our mission. What makes it a high quality product? It's that the farmers are only picking those top two leaves in a bud. And there's very strict quality control within Kenya. Um, within this cooperative in Kisi. And so you're not getting any of that tannic, bitter aftertaste as if a machine was coming along and picking, let's say, the four top two leaves in a bud or the stalk. So it's really a consistent, strong, smooth flavor. We like to say you can leave the tea bag in your cup, your mug, and it won't have that bitter aftertaste. It will only get stronger. So what are the different types of teas there? Like pico tea, I know in Ceylon they have the pico tea. Yeah, so this is really closest to an Assam, um, which was introduced again by the British at the turn of the century. Um, and the, the processing of the tea is a CTC tea. So that means cut, tear, mm-hmm. curl. And so it's a very fine and granular tea. So they're literally taking the leaf um, once it is dried and they're cutting it, tearing it and curling it. And so it's not a beautiful long leaf, whole leaf, orthodox tea um, that you might see in a specialty tea shop. It is really fine. um, And we sell it loose like that. And we also sell it in tea bags. And, you know, I don't think that our CTC tea that cut, that tear, that curl really affects the flavor. Really, it just gives it this strong, strong punch. And, And that's 
mainly because historically the way tea has been processed in Kenya. So leaning more towards the CTC process than the whole leaf orthodox process. You said the Kenyans do drink teas. So is the tea which your cooperatives make, are they sold in the domestic market or are they primarily for the export market and then the locals also drink some tea now that they've been introduced to it? Great question. Um, Kenyans drink tea every day, you know, our, and, and this tea particularly, or a tea similar, not perhaps from this cooperative, but from another cooperative. There are 60 of these cooperative type systems that are um, throughout Kenya. And so I know our students are having tea time every day in school. Our women's groups that we, you know, employ to make our packaging are drinking tea every day. Um, tea is very much a part of Kenyan culture. You said the plantations were about a quarter an acre, half an acre plantation. So these are small farmers who grow it literally almost just their backyard. It's not that big. And then they hand pick these leaves, hand it over to the co-ops, and the co-ops, they process the teas, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Yep. Tea processing is a more mechanized. It's not something that you can, it's at least in the present form, cannot be done by hand. Yes, that's correct. Um, and the farmers, you know, own a, like I like to say, you know, really not plantations at all, but a quarter acre to two acres of land. Um, and there are larger tea estates or plantations in other parts of Kenya, Kericho being one of those regions. Um, but, you know, this area of Kisi kind of and and the size in which I'm telling you, you know, really literally a quarter acre of land kind of speaks to some of the problems in the region, which is, you know, overpopulation. You know, what was once perhaps 60 years ago, 20 acres of land has been divided and divided and divided up amongst family members to now be a quarter acre of land. Um, and that kind of also speaks to the the levels of poverty within the region. And and what we're trying to address with Ajiri, right, is that um, women provide farm labor, not just in tea, but in other crops as well. But in sub-Saharan Africa, women own less than 1% of the land. Um, and, you know, land has a direct link to opportunity in, in rural regions, right? A direct link to money. And so... Um, with a GRT, you know, we're employing women and the women that we have employed have gone on to buy land um, and buy livestock and use those resources to generate income. What does a GRT mean? Yeah, so we can kind of go back to that since we've we've touched on the, the biggest part, right, which, which helps us fund our model, which is T. And so kind of working backward, a GRT means to employ in Swahili. And that's really our primary goal of our company is to create sustainable employment for women. Um, And so we employ 60 women in this area of rural Western Kenya to hand make each and every label for our tea boxes using dried bark from banana trees. So banana tree bark kind of naturally curls off of a tree and the women take a razor blade and cut up that banana bark and then glue it onto our own handmade paper, which is made using water hyacinth, um, an invasive weed on Lake Victoria, and recycled office paper. So it's a really kind of low-cost piece of art that is unique and beautiful and environmentally friendly. 
And we encourage customers to then save those labels um, that they receive on their tea boxes and reuse them as note cards or bookmarks. Is this traditional art in uh, this area or is it something that you and Sarah thought of and taught the women how to? It is a traditional art, um, not just amongst this area of Kenya, but really amongst um, sub-Saharan Africa. And my sister and I, you know, when we were trying to start um, this company, we wanted something that was relatively low um, entry for skill sets, right? And for and for ages mm -hmm. um, for women, right? And so we had found these note cards in a market that were made using dried bark from banana trees. And we said, you know, I'm sure that we could teach people how to make these, specifically women. And so it kind of grew from there. And it was a very, very big learning experience for us and for all of us. I'm in the community. We're going on 10 years now um, in label design and production. And then, you know, we employ women to make the labels, but then we also are trying to create employment for women of all, all ages. And the labels require a level of dexterity and eyesight. Um, mm -hmm. And so we wanted to employ women, you know, in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and perhaps above. And so they make a small twine using recycled um, banana bark and uh, beads using recycled magazines that can be repurposed as a bracelet that go inside of each package of tea. Do you and Sarah speak the language? How do you communicate with the women? Yeah, so there are, I don't know quite off the top of my head, how many local languages um, in Kenya But in this area, it's Kisi. So the two official languages of Kenya are Kiswahili and English. Um, but in this area, they're speaking Kisi, which is similar enough to Swahili. It's a Bantu language. Um, but we communicate with a mixture of English and Swahili. Um, and we also have two full-time social workers, Difna and Regina, who work with us in Kisi to help communicate with the women. A GDT also pays for the orphans to go to school. Mm -hmm. How do you find these orphans? Is there a collection process? Do the schools recommend them to yeah, you? That's a great question. And I think that um, just touching on that, you know, with a jury and, and kind of segueing back to what we were talking about, a jury tea, we try and do two things really. And when we started was one, tackling an, an issue that was here and now or a challenge that was here and now, and that was the employment for women, right? So what can we do to create employment for women who are not highly skilled or not highly trained? Um, what can we do to actually get cash in their hands so that they can go on to start small businesses, improve their lives. And so that was kind of our first immediate goal. Um, and we do that through the sale of tea. And then the secondary goal was tackling this issue of youth unemployment. And, you know, Africa has the youngest population in the world. And young adults, I think in Africa, make up 20% of the population. When you say young adult, what age group? Between 15 and 24. Mm -hmm. And, um, but they account for 60% of the unemployed. The job numbers actually coming out of Kenya are pretty, pretty dismal. I'm, I mean, of the, there were 800,000 jobs created in 2016. 90% of those jobs were in the informal, poorly paid sector, if you will. Um, and so we are trying to find a way to say, you know, we have to address this issue of youth unemployment. If we're, if we're addressing the issue of, an employment for women, 
generally kind of older women, right? Um, how can we really get to the root of the issue um, of inequality and how can we address youth unemployment? Um, and I know that this was a concern for the community before, obviously, before we started, because when we asked, when we were starting to kind of think of where the money could go that we were going to make, we hadn't made yet, we asked the tea farmers and the women, we said, look, you know, we want the money to come back to the community. It only seems right. And they all said, invest in education for orphans, really kind of getting to the root of of some of the issues that they were seeing. And so, you know, consistently we have sponsored 30 orphans in school. And how we select them is is really a challenge. You know, we're not selecting the students with the highest test scores. We're not selecting the so-called best and the brightest students. We're really selecting the most vulnerable students. So kids who would not go to school without our sponsorship. Um, and these students are coming to us through tea farmers, through local principals, the child welfare office, through church groups, though we are not religiously affiliated. And then we tend to sponsor siblings. It's a real challenge for us too, because you know, potential is a very hard thing to measure. And as you can imagine, when you're sponsoring vulnerable um, children, there are, you know, certain challenges, challenges, you know, emotional issues come out. And you would think, or you would hope that once there's food on the table, school uniforms are bought, school books are purchased, everything's set, they're ready to go to school, they're going to do well. And of course, as you know, that's not always the case. It's not always the case with people from privileged backgrounds, right? Kids are kids. And so we really make the commitment to stick with our kids, no matter their test scores. And and that takes work. It takes work from the principals. It takes work from our social workers. It must be a challenge to just to get them to school, right? The, the absenteeism rates, if they don't have a stable home life, to make them just show up in school, let alone perform or excel. Yeah, so... So the way it kind of works in Kenya is that secondary school is boarding school. And so primary school, while technically free, and, and there are more day schools, students still have to buy a uniform and books. And so it's not really free. Um, and so we cover that. And then we really focus on sponsoring secondary school students who are all in boarding school in different locations throughout Kisi. Um, and our two social workers, Regina and Difna, um, escort each student to school, buy all their shopping, and then check in with their students once or twice a term. There are three trimesters. Um, and so they really have a, a great handle on their home life and school life. And that's kind of why we've kept the number to 30 students is that it's very manageable. We still have these very close connections. So now AGDT has been in operation, I want to say, about 10 years? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yep. How did you get the initial funding? Because you were 19 and your sister was 21 working for an NGO. What was your startup cost and how were you willing to take this risk? And of course, the youth probably helped. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I, mean, I can the world. And I think that's a really great question to ask because I think that a lot of times we ask these questions of startups or we're thinking these questions and there's, it's not always straightforward, right? Um, and so my mother had studied in Kenya in the 70s. And so we have had kind of Kenyan connections. And, and so Kenya was a pretty familiar place to 
us and our family. Um, and so my mother initially loaned us $20,000 to start a GRT company. And how much have you given back? How much have you given, uh, or rather, how much has a GDT foundation given back to the mm-hmm. community in the last 10 years? Yeah, so we we donate, um, we have donated $20,000 each year um, on average for the past five years. Um, and while that might not seem like a lot of money, I think that the biggest and it donations that we are giving is through a kind of the time and commitment. So all our overhead expenses, so our salaries, our um, office space in Kenya, the transport, our salaries of our colleagues, they're all covered through the Ajiri Tea Company. And so any profit is going directly to programming. And so, you know, not included in those costs, if you will, is Regina and Difna going for example, every day this week to a student school and spending their time. This is the second brand that um, Mindful Business is is featuring, which is giving back 100% of their profits to a cause in their mission statement. The other one was the two blind brothers, and they were very young uh, when they started. They are now 29 and 33. So what is inspiring the young people to give back, start businesses which are mindful? What has changed in the environment? I don't see many people in my generation doing this in their 20s. They were out trying to get consulting jobs, you know, or finance jobs. You know, I... I, And I'm sure you are smart enough to get any of those jobs, you know. Yeah, you know, I can't really answer that question because I think that when... For us, at least, um, Sarah and I and also my mother, we're working so closely in a community. It only seems right that the profits go back to the community. And I, I like to say, you know, the mission or the cause or whatever you want to call it, it's so rooted in our product. It is our product, right? We're not just selling tea. We're trying to create employment. We're trying to create education. We're trying to disrupt a cycle of poverty, of gender inequality. Um, and so to do that, you have to invest back into the community. And and it's not just me and Sarah, my mother, doing this, right? It's it's our community getting on board in Kenya to make this happen. It's, you know, our women's groups selecting vulnerable students and then following up with them to make sure that they're doing well in school. Mm-hmm. It's our jury students that we sponsor, you know, volunteering to come back on their college breaks to mentor and tutor students in the office. You know, it's we've really created this kind of cycle of change that I just hope keeps keeps on rolling. So how often do you have to go back? Or do Regina and the other social worker take care of most of the the social entrepreneurship part of your business? Yeah. So my sister and I, you know, we'll switch off trips. Um and we usually go back about four times, three to four times a year, um, whether it's, you know, to kind of have those very human connections that make work work um, or to lead programming. So I know that in in a month we are leading a computer camp for our 30 sponsored students. It's kind of modeled after a summer camp, but they'll be learning how to use computers with a real focus on 
um, environmental activism. And so we are, you know, making windmills and solar panels and um, learning, you know, about climate change and learning about fake news. And hopefully it'll also be fun. Um, and again, this is this is um, funded through the sales of a Jiri tea. Where can one buy your tea? Yeah, so we have a store locator right on our website. We are sold in larger grocery chains, mainly on the East Coast. But really, we love small, independent, local stores. And you sell online, too, on your website, too. You can buy and we sell online at ajiritea.com. Thank you, Kate Holby, for all the work you and Sarah do. Thank you so much for being mindful. Thank you, Vidya, for the great conversation. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. We recorded this podcast at Q1067 Lafayette, Indiana. Thank you, Jim Stone, the owner of this radio station. Tatum Gill composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer for Mindful Businesses. 